welcome to the Buzz Podcast. We're here at the QRM headquarters where we're hive talking, and we're so glad to have you back. Today I have with me Megan Usry. She's our Director of Reimbursement Programming. Welcome, Megan. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me back again. You bet. <laughs> I was going to say, you're like my, my partner in crime in these things, my, my go-to person. So love to have Megan on. Love the, the comments she has to make. Megan, you're always a pleasure to talk to and, and better yet, work with day in and day out. So welcome back. Thanks. We are going to talk about Don't Forget the Basics. You know, it's interesting because I think I could have recorded this every year for the last 35 years, right? And I probably wouldn't be off target. So let's start with the simple question, what are the basics? Yeah, so I think we've talked about this internally as a team so many times. We're like, it just seems so simple, right? Like, just do the basics. But then when you start to kind of unpack that, there are a lot of variables that impact it. So in my mind... The basics are just the essentials, right? Like what is absolutely necessary? So I think when I think about that, I think about life, right? Like how do you sustain life? Food, water, shelter. And facilities need the basics not only to operate, but to stay, you know, to keep their doors open, to care for their patients. Their patients need the basics. But if I think that I know the road that you're going down, we're talking you know, something similar to reimbursement, right? So what do facilities need to be reimbursed for the care that they're getting? Well, you know what? I love where you start with, though, and that's one of the things I always get. It's that conundrum where we're running a business, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit business. You know, we and our clients are running businesses. CMS and the government would prefer we don't treat it like a business. So it's kind of a weird position to be in, and it's very strange. But one of the, the conversations you and I have had and we've had with our, our clients, our colleagues, our employees is we are always start with one thing. We start with the care care yep and that to me where you're saying food water care th those are the basics are we caring for our residents now the assumption i'd like to make today is that we are caring for our residents we're providing the appropriate level of care the care is not an issue with that said because i think that always needs to be said we always need to go back and and clarify the number one basic is providing the right level of care but after that what are some of the basics for a skilled stay what are some of the things, the, the hoops we have to jump through or whatever you want to call it, that, that we have to do every single time in order to be reimbursed and have CMS and our third-party payers recognize the care that we're providing? Yeah, so I think with basics as far as, you know, like technical requirements go for a skilled stay, of course, they have to qualify for a Medicare Part A stay. But also, once they're in our care, we have to do certs and research care plans. We have to have documentation to support everything that we are putting on the MDS because that's where our reimbursement comes from. We need nomnocs, ABNs. You know, there are so many technical requirements for a skilled stay that just absolutely have to be done or you're at risk for a denial. All of that actual hands-on care that you were providing for those patients, not to say it goes by the wayside because that, that's not true. You cared for the patient. You need to be reimbursed for that. And if you don't meet all of those technical requirements and have all those pieces of documentation in place, you're just flat out not going to be reimbursed for that. It's funny during the public health emergency, I won't say pandemic because COVID seems to be popping up here and there again, but during the public health emergency, we had the waivers. And it seems like everybody was very familiar with the qualifying hospital stay waiver and they'd say, we're going to skill them using the waiver, which was a legitimate thing because, you know, it, 
they needed that level of care. But since you may or so, we're having to make sure they have that qualifying hospital stay. And I think a lot of us were nervous for a few weeks that people weren't recognizing the need to get that documentation, count the midnights in the hospital, make sure they're coming over from the hospital with either the diagnosis they were admitted with or a qualifying diagnosis that that required ongoing care. And that was kind of the first hoop that they had to jump through, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up because during that time, you know, we still had to get certs and resears. We still had to give Nomnox and ABNs. We still had to document on our patients. The only things that were waived during that time were that three midnight hospital stay. And then, of course, we had that benefit period waiver. But all of these other things were still in place. And it kind of brings me to another point. You know, when we talk about not following through on the basics, I think one overthinking it two deviations from like the quote unquote norm and I'm actually using my air quotes anytime there's a deviation from that normalcy which we kind of had that with the not kind of we absolutely had that with the pandemic and the public health emergency kind of like things start to fall through the cracks and a certain research while absolutely imperative it's a piece of paper being signed you know and so things like that kind of fall through the cracks you know oops we discharged somebody without a nomnot oops we missed a couple of days of documentation after the public health emergency was over it was a great time for us to kind of reset on absolutely all of these things need to be happening we need a process we need a backup you know we need to assign somebody all of these tasks but we also need a backup person for those tasks if we don't back again risk for technical denial. The fact you're talking about backup process is just a person unless you have a backup because the process dies if that one person assigned to do it is not there and you don't have a backup. So not really a process if, if you don't have a backup. I'm going to throw something at you. Oh dear. When we assume that a process is in place and I'm going to use certs and research as that process because I want to talk about that for a minute. When we assume bulletproof, fail-safe process in place and we don't monitor it we don't go back and check it we're at risk for a technical denial true or false true absolutely i think that was a kind of a gimme question the reason i bring that up is over the last oh 10 years that i've been really focused on reimbursement one of the processes that always is kind of a head scratcher to me is search and research because i'm constantly being told that we have a process, it happens every single time. We don't look at it because it happens every time. Number one, I always think, well, triple check, generally in my experience, you look at certain research and make sure the dates are correct and signatures are there. But it's surprising how many times when I say, great, let's pull those, those certs and research out and let's look at them. The eyes get wide, the faces get white, and it's like, oh crap, now we've been caught. How often do you think that maybe that's the case, especially with certs and research? Oh, I'm sure I'm sure it's the case. You know, I think the culprit many times when we ask our facilities about certain research is, oh, yeah, like we fill them out and, you know, we put them in a, in a physician's box. Well, how often does your physician or your nurse practitioner PA come in? Oh, like once a week. Oh, OK. Well, what if you need them signed sooner than that? You know, like we don't really want to be waiting a week to get an initial certification signed. And there's really not a process. The tight timelines and, of course, following through and following up on whatever you're expecting of your physicians or if you're an administrator of your MDS coordinator, 
I love the inspect what you expect. You know, it's kind of cliche, but it's true. It's not like, hey, I don't trust you to get your search and research signed timely. I just want to make sure everything's running smoothly. We don't want any surprises here. Oh, don't like surprises. The only surprise I like, birthday cake. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) No other surprises. (laughs) It's interesting because... There are lots of facilities that have gone to electronic signatures, which I think is awesome. But one of the, the problems I see there is that we assume that everybody, all of our physicians and physician extenders have signed on to electronic signature, and that's not always the case. So we then have two processes running, one which seems to take care of itself more easily when they're doing electronic signatures. The other requires manual follow-up and the need generally to have a signature log so that signatures are recognizable. You know, it's interesting. I was in one facility a couple of years ago and I was going through all of the physician certs and research and I started looking at signatures thinking, man, there are a lot of loops instead of a signature. And it wasn't a circle. It was just a loop. And so I, I pulled the signature log off and none of the physicians had signed the signature log with a loop. And so I said, hey, hey, I think we're missing one of the physician signatures. Actually, we weren't, but two of the physicians had started using a loop instead of a signature. And so not only were they not distinguishable from each other, you couldn't identify their signature on the signature log to their actual loop that they were signing on the certain research. Craziest thing. The other thing that I saw was the dates were illegible and nobody had written, you know, date received or anything like that. So if a date is not legible, is that a valid or an invalid cert or research? If it's not stamped or marked as received on that certain day at that certain time, then it's not valid. It needs to be legible. I get it. Everybody is busy. But I would really encourage facility staff to let their physicians know how important it is that these dates are legible and that their signature matches the signature log. It puts the facility at huge risk if those things are not legible. And I think if they know how important their signatures and dates are on these pieces of paper, they'll be more likely to make it look a little bit nice. I don't feel like that's too much to ask. I don't either. I I just think, I I agree. I don't think anybody's intentionally doing this. I think it's just really rushing through it and not not really recognizing the consequences if we don't take our time with it and do it right. So we're going to change gears a little bit. Nom knocks, sniff ABNs. Required, not required. And what happens if we don't have them? Required. In most circumstances, of course, there are there are some circumstances when they are not, but, you know, it would probably take us the rest of this afternoon to go through all the different scenarios, but they are required. They are absolutely required. Let's throw out a scenario that the resident isn't ending their skilled stay. The provider, the skilled nursing facility, IDT, is determined that they no longer qualify for skilled level of services. That circumstance, required, required, always required. Yeah, required. Time when they would not be required, resident exhaust their benefits, right? They've exhausted all their benefits. They leave AMA. They voluntarily don't want skilled services anymore. They transfer to another SNF. In those circumstances, not required, but the one that you gave, yes, required. Staying with us, they're coming off skilled stay, it's required. So what happens if we don't have a, a nom knock? Say, if we just forget to give them an omnic, forget to document and and provide one to the resident and their caregiver or are those people making decisions on their behalf? What happens? That you're in trouble. 
<laughs> no, you're not only at risk financially, but from a compliance standpoint, also very much at risk. It is super important. And and I think when we, like earlier when we were talking about things falling through the cracks, this is another one just because of the timeline and when skilled determination is made or, you know, the determination that they're not meeting skilled criteria anymore or getting a hold of a family member or a caregiver to give them that notification. So mind your timelines, because if not, you're not only not only are you putting the patient at risk financially, but also the facility at risk financially and from a compliance standpoint. Yeah, big risk, big risk, because those provider liable days, they add up until you actually provide an omnoc. Notice of Medi- Medicare non-covered. It's a lot of money that not many facilities have these days. Yeah, and we've seen it go 30, 60 days and nobody's given one. And so you really can't collect any other payment source because nobody's been notified. They don't, they haven't continued on a skilled stay. So we really haven't given the the resident proper notice. One of the things that's confusing, and we won't go into a lot of detail here, because like you said, this could take up an hour to go through Medicare notices, but NOMNOX and SNF ABNs, are they the same thing or are they different? They are different. They are different. So notice of Medicare non-coverage is when the facility determines that the patient no longer meets skilled criteria, and that's more typical. And then there are SNF ABN, Advanced Beneficiary Notice, for Part B. In my mind, the way it was explained to me, and tell me if this is true or not, NOMNOC is really determined whether and notifying them whether they continue to meet skilled criteria or not. Generally, the not we're taking off. The SNF-ABN is generally used to assign payment. Who's responsible for payment? Correct? Not correct. 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 You are correct. Correct. Yep. So those people who say they're not required, really do some research on that because there are technical aspects of there. They're costly. One last thing we're going to talk about today is documentation. We love documentation, right? It's that love-hate relationship. We love to talk about it because it always needs to be talked about. But in a skilled stay, how required is documentation? It is absolutely required. CMS has not come out and said, like, you have to document this often, all of your patients. They really leave it up to the facility and their process, policy, procedure, guidelines, whatever you want to call them. It is something that is absolutely necessary. I think we've gotten to the point where we've either we've got two issues. Either we have cookie cutter documentation, which we see all the time, the copy and the paste. It all looks exactly the same. You guys, I'm sure everybody listening who's familiar with SNFs knows exactly what I'm talking about. Or we've got very little documentation and it doesn't ha- really have anything to do with a skilled level of care. It needs to be not overcomplicated. I think it boils down to the nursing staff knowing what the patient is there for. Why do they need your services? And documenting according to that, right? What can you do as a skilled nurse that the patient needs to be there for and can't can't get this level of care at home? Why are your services required and why can't they receive those in a lower level of care? And document according to those. One group used to do the why me, why now? And then somebody added, so what? Why me, why now, and so what? And I thought, you know what? Those are good things because when I was working as a, a professional witness or expert witness, I reviewed hundreds and hundreds of charts 
for therapy and nursing. And, and I soon realized that if I read three notes from one provider, one healthcare professional, I knew what all their other notes were going to look like. Now, I read all their other notes, but this was even before cut and paste because a lot of these were handwritten. I started realizing when I started looking at electronic medical records, people, they were saying, I never cut and paste. That's true. However, you write the same thing every single time. So what's the difference between cut and paste and writing the same thing every single time? It, I don't think there's a difference. I don't think there's a difference either. You know, you don't want to get in the habit of having all your documentation look the same, right? Because it's not everything in skilled nursing has over the last um, many, many years has moved towards like an individualized plan of care for a patient. You know, we it needs to be individualized. It can't be cookie cutter. And so if you get in the habit of documenting even, I mean, you can have like a, a format in which you document to make sure that you don't miss anything, but you can't get in the habit of it looking the exact same every single time because that's not patient-centered. It's not, it's not individualized. If a resident didn't care, it didn't change. Their condition didn't change. You didn't change your plan of care. You didn't assess them and find anything you needed to do that required skill might not require skill, right? Exactly. Yep. That's the, the thing for me. So let's wrap it up really quickly. Your best advice for meeting the basics. Don't overthink it and have a healthy process, a shared responsibility, and of course, follow up, follow up, follow up. Love it. Love it. Thank you, for Megan, for spending time with me today. Appreciate it. Of course. It's always fun. We'll get together again, I'm sure, soon. I'm sure. So for all of you out there listening, you keep coming back. We'll keep talking. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks.